You're listening to an IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education. Powered by UCL Minds. This is Research for the Real World. Conversations with researchers and the paths they've taken to help shape our everyday lives. Hello there, I'm Dr. Homera Iqbal and I'm an Associate Professor of Psychology at the Social Research Institute here at the UCL Institute of Education. Today, we are so pleased to have Professor Elaine Unterhalter, who is a Professor of Education and International Development. She's also co-director of the Centre for Education and International Development here at the Institute. Elaine was born and educated in South Africa and has worked on issues of race, class and gender inequalities in education. Her specialist interests are in the capability approach and human development and education in Africa, particularly South Africa. Elaine has also just been elected a fellow of the British Academy. She's a prolific writer and some of her books include Gender, Schooling and Global Social Justice and Education and Poverty and Global Goals for Gender Equality, How People Make Policy Happen, which she co-wrote with Amy North. Today, we're going to talk to Elaine about her career and her work on gender equality in education in Africa and beyond. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Elaine. Thank you for being here. How are things with you? Thanks for having me, Humara. I'm, I'm looking forward to talking with you. Thank you. I mean, it's a shame we couldn't do this face to face. We're doing it online, but hopefully soon in the future, in the near future, we'll, we'll be able to have a cup of tea together and talk more about your research. So I'm going to start by asking you, what made you want to study education and what attracted you to higher education? I grew up in South Africa in a very, uh, in the period of apartheid, in a very segregated society. And I grew up in a white community that was very implicated in the injustices of apartheid, although my family were politically critical of that. And I went to a historically white university at a period of when there was quite a bit of social activism on the campus, although it was a period of a great deal of repression. The ANC had been banned. There was a lot of racism in very evident and very hard to deal with. And I think I, I was impelled by wanting to change that, but sort of not knowing how. And the sense that academic study or research could contribute information that could help in some process of transformation was very much woven into my experience, but also a feeling of anxiety that's because of the repression of the state, because of the fragmentation of the opposition movements, it was difficult to work out what was the right thing to do when. And, but I think I always had a very strong sense of practice as being important. And I, after I graduated in South Africa, I went to work in a very poor rural area in, in, in a hospital. I was teaching English, and, but actually much more of the teaching went the other way in that I learned a great deal about the society that I hadn't known through the experiences of people I got to know, many of whom were amazing, very, very brilliant people with 
incredible insights and a depth of political experience. And I became captivated by history because I thought that if you knew an alternative history, we would have an alternative way of understanding the society. So my, my, my first study was actually as a historian, I am a historian, and the notion to tell the history from below, to tell the history not of those who are in power, to question the positions of people in power was is where I started and where I still am in many ways, although at a university like UCL, we're, we're close to power and close to be able to criticize power, which is one of the things I find very interesting about universities. The reason I got involved in ed education was almost by accident. I, when I came to study in the UK, I became involved with the ANC, which was in exile at that time. And I uh, was a member of the ANC Education Committee, which was looking at alternative ways of delivering education, as well as research for a post-apartheid South Africa. And so that then became one of my early jobs. And so at the beginning, I don't think I knew very much about education as a field of study, other than someone who'd been through school and university and had these experiences of adult education. Mm -hmm. But through working in the ANC Education Committee and the, these research projects that it generated, I began to understand things about education as a system about different kinds of experiences of education and I guess also through that political engagement became very interested in the issues of women's rights and gender equality in education which started to become my specialist area of work. The fact that you have specialised a lot in, in gender education and can you tell me about some of the studies you've done in this area and some of the work you've done in this in this realm? I suppose there were two or three routes into that interest that maybe have continued the kind of motor of the ways I've thought about it. The one route was through the 1970s uh, women's movement, which was did reach us when I was a student in South Africa. It was very powerful uh, politically and intellectually for me when I, I came to study in the UK. And that kind of mobilization around uh, reproductive rights and uh, challenging the kind of multiple ways in which gender inequality were mapped into a society, that was a early area of interest for me. And I was very interested in the, that the history of South Africa I was studying or trying to write from below how the voices and experiences of women had been left out of that history. So some of my early work was on uh, women's history and a women's history of political organizing. And when I started to do my work on education, I noticed that the, a lot of the way that education uh, studies dealt with gender was in this very flat kind of way that I uh, have sometimes called referring to gender as a noun or descriptive versions of gender that you would you could capture uh, the, the assumption is that you can capture everything about the nature of gender inequality 
or even the aspiration for gender equality by just noting numbers of girls and boys and the kind of multiple ways in which inequality was constructed and experienced, which I knew from South Africa was so linked with race and class and location and age, all of those processes and political affiliation, all of those processes seem to me completely obscured by this flat descriptive notion of gender. So that's how I became interested in trying to develop a thicker way in which we could understand gender inequality in education, all the ways in it, which it uh, intersects with other kinds of inequalities, all the ways in which it's maintained and the difficulties of trying to challenge it. And some of interest came to focus on the issue of measurement because my notion was if you measured something better you might get better policy i mean i don't i know that policy isn't only the outcome of the metrics you use it's the outcome of many political processes but i guess this kind of concern of mine to always try to make my research practical was what led me to the whole debate about measurements and can we measure gender inequality in education better? I mean, two things that come to my mind from that. I mean, first of all, can you tell me a little bit about the work you've done around policy related to gender and education, particularly South Africa and kind of changes that you'd like to see? And then also linked to that, I mean, at at the moment, the UN Sustainable Goals are often used as kind of a benchmark for measuring, I guess, progress or change. Um, do you find those to be helpful in this kind of larger, this larger topic around policy and gender? Yeah, I'll try to answer that with the one thing connecting to the points I'm trying to make about the second. The politics of transformation in South Africa is a South African transformation transformation would be a better kind of experience, a more sustained experience of work around social justice and equalities and connecting across racial divisions, all of which had been some of my experience in the ANC in exile. The reality, as you know, everybody who's been involved with a liberation project and then see the reality is it's more complex, more difficult, more intertwined with very complex and difficult formations of power. And the reasons decisions are taken has a long backstory. So the kind of ideas we formulated about gender equality in education sitting in lots of meeting rooms in London or in Harare or later in uh, Johannesburg. Some of it came to pass, some of it remains on paper, some of it is, you know, imperfectly applied and the reasons for that are complex. I mean, that's, I guess I've written about that. I've talked to lots of people who've been involved in those processes at lots of different levels from government down to very local initiatives. And I, th I think that's why we called our second book, How People Make Policy Happen, because people write policies as though it, once you have the policy, it will some, somehow by magic make things happen. But the policy is only one tiny 
bit of the ingredients you have to put into the cake. There's so many other ingredients. And I think that all of those experiences relate to the SDGs. It's wonderful that there was an inclusive process of consultation the SDGs in contrast to the MDGs, which people say were dreamt up by four or five people sitting in a basement room somewhere in New York. The SDGs, a million people contributed in some way to the surveys and there was a lot of participatory reflection. And you, you've ended up with 17 goals. You are using metrics to measure them and they're very imperfect. But it does open the canvas wider. It's the MDGs just focused on primary education and just on gender parity, mm -hmm. whereas the SDGs gives a wider canvas to work on. And I am critical of aspects of the SDGs and I'm critical of some of the metrics and the belief that metrics can do work of people when it's people who have to change. But I do think they're a step in the right direction. And, uh, you know, the conditions of this terrible epidemic in which we it feels as though we're losing so much, it's, it's still an orientation of a kind of world we might want to grow back to if we are able to. Like a beacon. We should probably clarify SDGs, you mean the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And by the MDGs, you mean the Millennium Development Goals, is that right? Yeah, the Millennium Development Goals were agreed in 2000, and they were a narrower range of goals with a narrower focus on only achieving universal primary education and just a focus on gender parity. The Sustainable Development Goals were agreed in 2015, and they're a wider Mm, absolutely and you know I like them because they're more they're definitely wider I mean they even they kind of take things like environment into account and, and kind of environmental change climate communities and there's a lot on gender there as well so I really like what you said about them being a sort of a beacon of hope in the future that we can kind of we, we can hope we strive to, to get there as a world of a humankind can try and, and kind of get to, to these goals I also really liked what you said, Elaine, about um, history to begin with and the point between, well, policy can be implemented, but then policies can be made, but how they're implemented and how successful they are really depends on, you know, the people who they're being implemented on. And that's really, I guess, tied into historical past and how societies see themselves. So I really like that point you made about history as well. I also wanted to ask you, Elaine, about some of the other countries that you've worked in Africa. Can you tell me about some of the other work you've done and what you've studied there? Yeah, well, I've had some wonderful opportunities. I've done work in Kenya and in Nigeria and Tanzania. Those have been uh, the three countries in which I've done quite big research projects. After the Tanzania study was a partnership with ActionAid. Actually, the first work I did in Tanzania and Nigeria was in partnership with ActionAid. So these partnerships with NGOs have been very interesting for me, partly because they've taken me to places that are outside the capital, connected me with activists, because often NGOs have people working for them who are campaigning and have a critical perspective and experience of trying to change things over 
a long period. So that was the work I did in Tanzania and uh, Nigeria the first time I went to Nigeria. I think I've done three more projects in Nigeria since that initial partnership with ActionAid. And each has been really illuminating because Nigeria is such a, a very diverse country society with so many different threads of politics in it. And also the things I think that I found difficult and demanding as a kind of idealistic South African who was having to confront the realities of post-apartheid politics. The people I worked with in Nigeria had always had that experience of difficult governments, ideas um, thrown out, stamped on, struggled over, clung to, argued it about. So I found so, so much very dynamic in the conversations I had with people in Nigeria. And the work I've done in Kenya was sometimes comparative with South Africa because Kenya, like South Africa, has high, high levels of inequality. It's had good policies on paper, difficulties of implementing it, large regional variations. So each country in Africa I've worked in, I, I feel I've had got a depth of insight from the experiences people have had with the complexity of trying to work for change in education. And I think I had similar kinds of opportunities in the, uh, some work I did in India and Bangladesh, which also brought me quite close to governments because I, these were both large projects and partnerships with governments and we were working inside government ministry buildings and that also was extremely illuminating who are the people in government what do we talk about in the tea breaks how does that help you understand how easy or difficult it is to bring about the change so yeah i'm extraordinarily fortunate to have had so many interesting people very committed and engaged and learn about so many different histories because this is now becoming a project that I hope we be launching through SEED quite soon. One of the things that I've learned through many of the people I've talked to is that a lot of the great writers on education are men, but a lot of the work in, or the, sorry, the writers we study in university on education tend to be men, but a lot of the work in education is done by women and the stories of those women who are education, people of great insight, great imagination, great talent, is not well known. We know about the stories of a, of a handful, you know, Maria Montessori is a name that people know. But so I'm trying to collect these stories, which I, people have told me in different places and times of very uh, significant women contributors to the field of education. And we're going to build that on our seed blog quite soon. <laughs> so, but, but we also, we're also looking at thinkers from the global south, not 
I'm, I'm particularly interested in the, these forgotten women, but there are also some very significant male writers who we don't give enough credence to, and we're wanting to curate those stories. Elaine, that was really fascinating. I can see how, you know, you have such a kind of breadth and depth of knowledge across so many different countries and actually many of them former colonies and then across kind of the continent of Africa. And um, it's really nice to hear you're bringing these all together in the form of this kind of piece of work you're doing and kind of these forgotten heroes almost, many of whom are women, as you you say, will kind of be showcased and will remember kind of the work they've done. So I'm I'm really looking forward to looking at that when it's ready. I wanted to ask you next about actually the kind of methods you use in your research, because from what you've told me, you work across with so many stakeholders, with ActionAid, as you said, so with NGOs and activists and uh, with communities and governments. So what kind of methods do you use in your research? And I was reading a paper that you wrote recently about foreignness and reflective comparison. Um, And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about this also when, when you kind of discuss the methods that you use. I think I'm, I'm really quite hybrid in relation to methods. My training was as a historian, but I can, um, the, the degree I studied had was more like a liberal arts degree in that I, I had a lot of literature and a lot of interest in literature, I guess literature as a source for history, because when we were trying to look at documenting African history in South Africa, the sources for that were very sparse, and some of them were literary. So that kind of literature background had always interested me. But I also, in the work I started to do in the kind of policy development research project was called Research on Education in South Africa, which we were trying to develop policy options for the ANC in exile. A lot of straight social science techniques were clearly important, statistical, developing statistical accounts. And then just those straight good techniques of interviewing. So I have, I've had experience of a range of different methods and I tend to be very eclectic in the way I use them and kind of encourage my students to be very, to be similarly sort of bold and adventurous in relation to method. So I think I like method very rigorous, that is also kind of aware that it can be mixed. And that development of that idea of reflexive comparison, which is my take on a long debate in comparative education. Well, it's a long debate that's gone on in relation to comparative education, which is a field of study, which is more or less a branch of history. It's a branch of the history of of education using comparative processes. It's a very august kind of uh, discipline in education and many elite universities will have a comparative education department and it traces its history back to three or four founding fathers and to the 18th century. So that's one area of work that's got very clear approaches to method, a very clear set of debates around uh, theory 
and a lot of rigor. And I, I sometimes compare that with the area in which I work, education and international development, as the kind of noisy kid who with kind of pigtails, who's kind of uh, stamping her fit and saying, listen to me. And education and international, no such intellectual heritage. I mean, in fact, some of it comes out of economics, of education and development. It's very associated with international organizations, very powerful with the kind of powerful geopolitics of aid. But there's also this critical undertow of voices who've, you, who, you know, they're, they're not associated with comparative education, but they've formulated other visions of education, that kind of vision from below, which I feel we need to claim for education and international development as a field that's very linked to practice, that's very diverse in terms of whose voices and perspectives it includes, and trying to push that field to be more critical. And so in saying reflexive comparative education, I'm trying to call for a method where people are critical about who they are and where their perspective, what has shaped their perspective, and then open to how they can connect with other disciplines and other perspectives and other ways of trying to use knowledge in a transformative way. It's still an idea in development, I guess. I wrote this tribute to a colleague at the Institute of Education, Jagdish Gundara, who had a very broad and generous exploration of the world of education and traveled down many paths, I think trying to make some of the connections. I did, I think he died about three years ago, but that sense of you make the world by walking and talking and listening and looking and trying to connect with each other, which is what I sort of discerned in Jagdish's work, is something I've wanted to bring to the kind of disciplinary field I work in, which is very pragmatic. You know, you have to make policy, you have to work within a tight budget, you have to respond to the demands of a UN organization or a government that is itself politically positioned. Almost a reminder and holding a mirror up, you know, because even though these processes take place, you know, the importance of really thinking about who the policy is for and kind of reflecting on it. And I mean, that makes so much sense. And it kind of actually gives me a clue about what your answer might be for my next question, which is about the capabilities approach, because in your work, you seem to have been really drawn to Amartya Sen's capabilities approach. And I mean, am I right in assuming this? And can you tell me about what this, a little bit about this approach and why has it captured your imagination so much? Yeah, it's very interesting, Humara. I think in that article, I wrote about finding this book by Amartya Sen, Development as Freedom, at a conference and just buying it, sort of not even knowing who he was and just reading it cover to cover. I can remember dropping my children at school and standing at the bus stop and just reading it as though it was a novel. And I, in retrospect, I'm trying to think why the ideas electrified me in the way they did. 
I think it, it was partly the sense that he would combine a big vision with the notion that you need to make change happen for the better, even if it was only small. And given that that had been my experience in relation to the kind of transformation in South Africa, many of my friends had shared that big vision and had been in the kind of political opposition movements, became very, very disillusioned and just went off and tuned out from politics or academic work or just became very cynical and maybe because I had an academic job and you always have to be responsive to your students and your colleagues that that was never something I thought of doing and so this idea of Amartya Sen's of of trying to make things better it doesn't have to be a big gesture but it can be a small gesture that really captivated me the fact that you could use scholarship and information and really try to understand what was happening and go below the surface was something I'd been doing for a long time. And then the, the, the introduction of philosophy and the idea, that, so the idea of the capability approach is that you mustn't evaluate, you, you don't evaluate just on outcomes. If you were only to evaluate how good an education system was just by how many people passed a particular exam, you would never see whether the, you know you might pass a, an exam and all the children would have been whipped to get them to pass that exam or they would have been placed under such enormous stress that they passed the exam they got good a good grade but the there'd been so much distress in the on the way to getting it so the key idea is that we must both evaluate the opportunities and are is there quality and good relationships shaping the opportunities as well as the outcomes? And that was such a light bulb moment for me. Uh, the first article on the capability approach in education I wrote was about the HIV epidemic in South Africa, which was a terrible epidemic and in the kind of shadow of coronavirus, I think we haven't reflected enough on that epidemic and what we learned, and, but we learned a lot. I think it had a huge, huge impact on us, even though we later buried many of what the things we'd learned. But what was clear to me was that if you didn't take the conditions and the vulnerabilities of girls who there was a very high level of sexual violence in South Africa. Girls on their way to school might be subject to sexual assault. If we were only going to count how many people passed an exam or passed from one grade to another, we would miss what was important about the ways in which gender inequality was operating in the society. So the capability approach and that concept of capabilities and functionings and the distinction between them gave me a particular insight into explaining processes that were happening. And that community of people who were working on the capability approach, alternative ways of measuring kinds of dialogues between philosophy and social sciences. All of that became an enormously productive community of scholarship and practice for me.
Mm-hmm. I love what you said. When you picked it up, it electrified you. And I mean, how good is it to find a piece of work or some writing or kind of an approach or an idea by someone and to just feel that sense of creativity from it? And I guess it's it's wonderful that it's been so helpful for you. You mentioned COVID there. And you, when you were talking about HIV in South Africa, and I think I want to come now to talk about what we're going through at the moment as a world, as a society, humankind. So how has COVID impacted your work, particularly because, you know, much of your work's international and, you know, you're far away from the communities that you, you work with. So what's happened for you in this period? It's been a strange period for me, as I'm sure it has for so many people, of initial confusion. I think the next wave of feeling was immense rage. I just, I I can remember shouting to friends on the phone saying I, I, I'm just getting waves and waves of anger at the inequality that is associated with this pandemic the people who were dying the ways in which some of the responses failed to protect the most vulnerable people and the ways in which all these crises collided, the economic crisis, the political crisis, an environmental crisis, and I think an education crisis. And I've kind of written about what kind of education crisis is it, and is it an education crisis out of which we will be able to create a better tomorrow that speaks to the kind of aspirations for rights and equality and social justice that I I think are so important. And I feel this is an important moment of trying to draw people in into a wider range of participatory dialogues about that, because I think many of the mistakes that have been made have been made by top-down direction rather than listening to experiences of people close to the different facets of the crisis. In relation to the international work I've done in SEED, we started the SEED blog, the COVID-19. It was wonderful because students and academics and people in like the kind of SEED network contributed and are continuing to contribute articles. Some are based on experience, some are based on a little bit, some are based on opinions. And so in some ways, that's been one of the ways in which we've tried to keep the, sorry, SEED is Center for Education and International Development, where I'm the co-director with Moses Oketch. We've tried to keep this dialogue open. We've tried to, and will continue, I think, get into discussion with some of the big UN organizations who have various initiatives in train with governments. I hope it will be a space in which critical voices can open because I'm just writing a lecture at the moment for students next in the next two weeks. And I see the I'm trying to find a good image on the web, but I see looking at this pandemic as a bit like looking through water. Certain things are absolutely enlarge the inequalities in the world and within countries and within education systems are massively magnified but you know water also changes things 
and it's I kind of feel it's in our hands how how and in which direction we can change things and I would hope that some of what we've learned is about being kinder and more connected to each other valuing the experience of people who get the harshest deal in the world that was one of the things that i think that was learned from hiv because out of the many epidemiological studies that were done linked to hiv came a very clear perception of the significance of gender-based violence as a social process that impacted on health, that impacted on households, that impacted on education and whole fields of, of, of work as well as different approaches to policing and the law have, have emerged partly out of that epidemic. It's been hard and a struggle to sustain some of the, those insights. I only hope out of all the suffering associated with this pandemic there will be some learning about the significance of equality and care and connection with people. I, I don't feel triumphalist in any way that we're anywhere near, but I just want to keep the hope for it alive. Absolutely. I mean, I hope as a humans with this big collective memory, we don't just try to quickly forget it and not make change. And actually for the listeners, I think if they're interested in, in kind of reading more about Elaine's kind of thinking on this, Elaine, you co-wrote such a brilliant opinion piece for Business Insider, and it was called, it's called Stop Obsessing Over GDP When Talking About the Pandemic Recovery. And when I read it, there was a really powerful statement in it, which kind of I was left thinking about a lot. And the statement is, GDP does not respond to diversity. It is heedless of ecological damage and does not engage with questions of justice or agency. And I, I thought that was a really powerful statement and, and really a lot of what you've just said. I'm able to hear more about your thinking on it. And so, yeah, I, I just really recommend that to people who are listening to, to give their reads. There's one more thing I want to ask you, and it kind of ties into what you've just said. And it's about global and local policy challenges that you see arising from COVID-19. So looking forward, what are the main challenges, policy challenges that you see, particularly related, of course, to your work on kind of gender and equalities? I think the challenges are probably the same challenges we've had in the world since the 1940s and the attempt to build some kind of multilateral order that was responsive enough to local conditions. And I think we've generally failed on both of those. And we try a little bit better and then we fail a little bit better. And probably the SDGs is, you know, a better attempt, as we've said, than the MDGs. But we need each other globally, clearly. But the further away you get from the, local, the, the detail of the local experience and the listening to the local experience, the more top-down top and problematic some of the responses can become. So I guess I continue to think of the importance of connection, you know, the need to connect the global with the local, the, the powerful with the powerless, the, the education system that's oriented to enabling us to survive in the world and kind of take account of these planetary boundaries with an education system that is 
helping us to care for each other and express our solidarity. So the local can sometimes be parochial and the global can sometimes be connected to social justice. I don't think one is one thing always. They're both very heterodox in the way you interpret them. I see the importance of connecting them and kind of in that old phrase from the civil rights movement of kind of bending towards justice. That's where I would want it to go. I, I think we always have to be aware how fragile our connections are and the things we've struggled over, including our education systems, can also be taken away. And we must never stop trying to achieve equalities that one generation struggled for. We can't assume that it will always be with us. We have to keep it alive. Such a powerful thought, Elaine. And, you know, I really hear what you're saying. It is so fragile. We've just seen, like, with this pandemic, how things can be taken away in an instant. And so I, I absolutely, we can't forget. We can't forget. It's been so wonderful talking to you, Elaine. Before I let you go, <laughs> I just wanted to ask you about, because you are you are co-director for the Centre um, for Education and International Development. And for listeners, please do visit the IOE website and you can hear more about the Centre. But it's is there anything, Elaine, that you'd like to, to say about the work that the centre does? We did speak to one of your colleagues, Dr. Tejendra Ferali, and he was telling us about some of his amazing work. But is there anything you'd like to say about SEEDS? Yeah, I, it, it was great that you could hear from Tejendra about his work and all his initiatives. And I've had so many amazing colleagues you know he's one of them i think we're the last seat is the largest center for work on education and international developments in definitely in the uk and possibly in the world where we're 25 researchers and academics we work in an, an amazing range of countries people come from very different disciplinary outlooks and amazingly, we all get on and we listen to each other and respect each other, which I think is a real tribute to the way that people have a, have a commitment to this area of work. We run four MA programs and uh, we, we, we will be launching a fifth one. We have a huge array of research happening in partnership with governments, with NGOs, with uh, academics in many different countries. We're constantly encouraged by our students to be critical. We're called out for a range of different things. We've just rewritten our core module looking at the decolonization debate and thinking about decolonizing the curriculum because our field of work is very tied in, as I spoke about earlier, with sources of power, sources that don't challenge some of the economic and political injustices of the world. So we're, we're a very lively <laughs> community and I sort of 
almost don't know how it's happened because there's so many different experiences that have come together in this group of scholars and yet people are amazingly dynamic in taking it forward. So something I feel really happy about that we've managed to establish and that we're using the SEED blog to document some of the experiences of the pandemic and there's a whole lot of creative thinking going on in the center, which I hope uh, will continue this kind of engagement internationally that's critical and reflective, thoughtful. Wow. Such an exciting center doing such exciting work. And I think really such a asset to the IOE and such an important part of the institution as a whole. And I definitely think the work you do there is, is fascinating. And also really glad to hear that the students have been really critically engaging with you, particularly, you know, around decolonization of the curriculum. We were speaking to Victoria Shinami and she was telling us about some of the work she was doing there. So definitely as a whole, I think we're all very committed to really further engaging with kind of more global scholarship and bringing it to the fore. Elaine, it was just wonderful speaking to you and just so impressive that you've done so much work across and in everything you say. And thank you so very much, Professor Elaine Interhalter, for joining me today. Oh, thanks, Humira. It's lovely to talk to you. If you'd like to know more about Elaine, you can visit the IOE website and follow the Centre for Education and International Development, CEID, on Twitter at CEID underscore IOE. Before we go, don't forget you can catch up on past seasons of Research for the Real World and other IOE podcasts on your favourite podcasting app. Just search for IOE Podcasts. Also, in the show notes, we have a quick survey for our listeners to do. Please let us know what you think of the podcast. I'm Himera Iqbal, and I'll see you again next time. Thanks so much for downloading and listening to this IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education, University College London. 